Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. We start off this episode with our monthly roundup of prison disturbances, as compiled by Perilous Chronicle. Two female work-released prisoners escaped from the KC County Detention Center in Liberty, Kentucky on December 1st. The pair were assigned as cooks at the jail and escaped by walking out an unlocked door. While one of them was arrested within 48 hours, the other spent over a month on the lam before being rearrested at 9pm on New Year's Eve. A group of at least 39 prisoners detained at the Eli State Prison in Nevada launched a hunger strike on December 1st in response to a list of grievances with their captors, including excessive use of punishments, solitary confinement and lockdowns, correctional abuse, inadequate food, lack of due process for rule violations, and other health and safety concerns. The prisoner advocacy group returned strong and other supporters held a demonstration in front of the Nevada Department of Corrections Transitional Housing Center in Las Vegas on December 9th in solidarity with those on hunger strike. The strike ended at the end of December without a clear agreement being reached between strikers and the Department of Corrections, although the department did announce a change in the way disciplinary measures are implemented in an effort to appease the strikers. Quote, Going forward, just like disciplinary segregation, we will not impose consecutive sanctions, a department director said. Quote, any administrative sanctions beyond the current action will cease. At around 6.30 p.m. on Wednesday, December 7th, two prisoners escaped from the Lorraine Medina's community-based correctional facility in Elyra, Ohio. According to the Akron Beacon Journal, the prisoners broke a window at the facility and fled. They were both recaptured by the Northern Ohio Violent Fugitive Task Force on Friday, December 9th. One prisoner was recaptured in Akron, Ohio. The other was recaptured in Wadsworth, Ohio. On Sunday, December 11th, a disturbance was reported at the Mountain Youth Academy, a residential trauma-based treatment program for youth in Mountain City, Tennessee. Allegedly, six people detained at the facility vandalized portions of the facility that resulted in significant property damage. Minor injuries were sustained by some staff and other detainees. Police were called. There were no reports of use of force. Those six people have been arrested and are being held at the sheriff's office. The cause of the disturbance is unknown. According to an anonymous source who reported to the Tomahawk, 12 female juveniles were involved in the event. On the evening of December 12th, two prisoners escaped from Cass County Jail in Harrisonville, Missouri. No reports have indicated how the two prisoners left the jail, but reports indicate a third person, who has since been arrested as an accomplice in the escape, was waiting for the two prisoners at a nearby gas station. One of the prisoners was captured 13 hours after the escape. His mother has also been arrested as an accomplice in the escape. As of January 8th, 2023, the other prisoner has yet to be captured. On December 13, 2022, law enforcement from multiple jurisdictions raided an encampment in DeKalb County, Georgia, outside Atlanta, where protesters had been camping as part of the Defend the Atlanta Forest movement. 
The protesters were camped out in hopes of preventing the construction of a $90 million police training facility and the destruction of the forest. When police took six protesters to DeKalb County Jail, others held a protest in front of the jail to show their solidarity with those arrested. In response to the protests out front of the jail, detainees banged on windows, flashed their lights, and even lit unknown objects on fire and hung them out the jail windows. On Sunday, December 25th, two prisoners were found to be missing during headcount at the Raymond Detention and Work Centre in Raymond, Mississippi. According to reports, the prisoners escaped the evening before, December 24th, through a damaged door in their pod and then jumped the facility's fence. Allegedly, after their escape, they stole a van from a nearby church. Law enforcement found the van in a body of water the next day. As of January 8th, 2023, the prisoners have yet to be recaptured. Attorneys for two imprisoned men argued last week before the state Supreme Court that Ohio prison officials should not be able to extend certain inmates' time behind bars because the law that enabled this is unconstitutional. That issue is part of a 2019 law that lets Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction argue for the parole board to keep some felony offenders in prison past the minimums of their sentence ranges due to bad behavior or indications they haven't been rehabilitated. The law, which the state defends as constitutional, was named for Reagan Tokes, a college student abducted, raped, and murdered by a man on parole in 2017. Two men, Christopher Hacker and Danon Simmons Jr., imprisoned in cases unrelated to that crime, are contesting the law. A previous ruling in a different case allowed incarcerated citizens like them to challenge the law even before DRC officials might move to extend their sentences. The outcome of their cases could impact dozens more, as the High Court is holding more than 60 cases until it decides these challenges. Hacker and Simmons argue the provision violates the constitutionally outlined separation of powers between the judicial branch, which issues sentences, and the executive branch, which includes the prison's department. They say the provision allows the executive branch to act as prosecutor, judge, and jury, and infringes on the right to a fair trial by not ensuring protections, such as the right to an attorney during proceedings about extending a sentence. A prominent California medical school is apologizing for conducting dozens of experiments on prison inmates in the 1960s and 70s that it now says were unethical. Two dermatologists at the University of California, San Francisco, one of whom remains at the university, conducted the experiments on at least 2,600 incarcerated men in the 1960s and 70s, including putting pesticides and herbicides on the men's skin and injecting it into their veins. The experiments were conducted at the California Medical Facility, a prison hospital in Vacaville that's about 50 miles northeast of San Francisco. The practice was halted in 1977. Quote, UCSF apologizes for its explicit role in the harm caused to the subjects, their families and our community by facilitating this research and acknowledges the institution's implicit role in perpetuating unethical treatment of vulnerable and underserved populations, regardless of the legal or perceptual standards of the time, Executive Vice Chancellor and Provost Dan Lowenstein said in a statement on the school's website. The university issued a report earlier this month acknowledging doctors engaged in, quote, questionable informed consent practices and performed research on men that didn't have the diseases that the doctors intended to treat. Today, we share tragic news. The police killed Tortuguita, 
a forest defender in the South River Forest in Atlanta on the morning of Wednesday, January 19th. We've previously covered the movement to protect the Atlanta forest in light of its history as a plantation and prison farm and the future plans to build a vast police training center. Our correspondent spoke with Sarah from the Atlanta Anti-Repression Committee, who filled us in on the state of the movement, this week's violent police raid on the forest camps, Tortuguita's death, and next steps. As she says, the movement's slogan, that Cop City will never be built, seems more true today than ever before, as an outpouring of grief and anger sweeps the country in the wake of this murder. I'm Sarah with the Atlanta Anti-Repression Committee. I live in Southeast Atlanta. I'm here to talk a little bit about what's been going on down here with the police raid of the Wilani Forest and the murder of a forest defender and activist um, who went by the name of Tortuguita in the Wilani Forest this past week. On Wednesday, January 18th, there was a multi-agency police operation in the area known as the Wilani Forest, which is two plots of land, one which is slated to for the Cop City project, which has been covered previously on the show. And that's land that is the old Atlanta prison farm, which I can go into more detail about later. And formerly known as Entrenchment Creek Park, recently renamed Wilani People's Park, um, which is disputed in a land swap between DeKalb County and a local real estate developer and Hollywood developer. So on Wednesday morning, there was about 50 police who assembled around the forest, um, controlling the perimeters of the roads and the entrances in and out of the area of forest where people have been having an ongoing occupation for over a year, about 14 months. And this is the latest in a series of police raids. They've been happening intermittently for about nine months now, but there's been a lot of resilience and continued occupation of the woods. And over the course of the morning, as news was coming in, it became evident that this was a level of escalation, that there were reports of a Georgia State trooper being shot. Um, and soon it came out that, in fact, while there was a lot of initial media from the police highlighting the fact that a Georgia State trooper had been shot, in fact, they had shot and killed one of the activists who was camping in the woods. And since then, there's been a lot happening, a lot of shifting police narratives, um, a lot of confusion and mourning from people here in Atlanta, people who are involved in this movement, people across the country and the world who are moved by this senseless murder and reasonably outraged at the reckless behavior of the police. Um, and police murder is something that is you know, the very basis of the movement to oppose Cop City. Um, and it's something that is foundational to um, why people were moved and why people like Tortuguita and others were moved to camp in the woods and resist uh, repeated police attempts at shutting down the protests and closing the areas to the public. Following the murder of this person, the police continued their operation in the forest. It didn't cease. And in fact, they arrested and are now charging, uh, I believe, seven people with charges of aggravated assault and domestic terrorism. And this is something that we saw a month ago. 
there was a different raid of the forest, which resulted in six people being arrested and charged with domestic terrorism charges, people who were occupying tree sits. And this week as well, um, over the course of about 24 hours, police sat under the base of tree sits, haranguing tree sitters, sent arborists up to cut out the supports from the tree sits and um, eventually forced people down out of these tree sets. It's worth mentioning that the understanding is Tortuguita themselves was a tree sitter. They endured uh, endless police violence during one of these raids. They're soaked in tear gas and pepper balls that were being shot at them from close quarters by the police. And after they were murdered, um, the police continued this type of violence against their fellow land defenders who were sitting in trees and just in the forest nearby, who were arrested by the police and now are being charged on these trumped-up charges, which obviously are in part a retaliation for the murder, an attempt to shift blame and to net some arrests. It's really something that is extremely egregious. Um, The domestic terrorism statute in Georgia, it was made in the wake of the violent shooting spree murder by Dylan Roof is specifically the the statute is citing Pulse nightclub shooting and other types of hate-based mass murder events as the basis for the need for a domestic terrorism charge. But Brian Kemp, the Georgia governor, who is at the top of the investigation and the, the task force effort, the multi-agency effort being coordinated by GBI. Brian Kemp, you know, he's been ramping up the narrative that protesters are terrorists and that this is the type of thing that we should use this statute against. So rather than using it as it's originally intended, this law is being applied against eco-activists and environmental defenders who are sitting in trees under police attack. There's some really beautiful things that people have been sharing about Tortuguita. Um, They were a longtime activist. They're an abolitionist. And they spent a a long period of time living in the forest. They were Afro-Indigenous and committed to anarchist politic. They believed in a world without police or prisons, and they believed in the the interconnection with environmental struggles. And so their murder is something that is hitting people really hard within the movement. They impacted and touched the lives of many people here. Specifically, they organized a lot of mutual aid efforts. They were a, a fixture of the movement and it's really a, a tragic loss and something that is devastating, galvanizing for many people who knew them and who are inspired by them and by the movement that they took part in. What's been happening since we learned about the murder of Tortuguita by Georgia State Police is quite a lot. Obviously, we're all very upset and concerned about the police narrative, which claims, like as the police always do, they're the victims that, of course, they were under attack, actually, when they shot and killed somebody. And of course, when someone else is dead, uh, the police are actually 
they're always the ones who were actually harmed. No one really like has a victim mentality like the police do. And so GBI has been hosting press conferences and putting releasing statements. They've changed their narrative quite a lot. Originally, they said that they the cops the cop who was shot was shot in an ambush style attack that they didn't see anyone. He was shot out of nowhere, and then they shot and killed the person. Then they changed the story later on to say they were approached by a person who then shot one of the cops. The story then changed to say, oh, actually, the police approached someone and sent, uh, like, you know, said some orders to them and they didn't comply. And then finally, they said, actually, this person was in a tent and the police approached the tent and spoke to the tent and then were shot. And that was sort of where it, it finalized. But when the GBI actually released photos of this, it wasn't a tent, it was a hammock. And so that is something that's really clearly different. It's like, of course, they would say tent to make it seem like they couldn't see this person clearly. They weren't sure what was happening inside the tent. But it's a, it's a different situation what they um, released in their own photos from the police. And what we know is that Georgia State Police work for Brian Kemp, who's the Georgia governor, who's been ramping up rhetoric around sort of fear-mongering around domestic terrorism and this sort of justifying violence against the protesters. And the Georgia State Police are, you know, they're mostly highway patrol. um, And so sending them into the forest, um, which is really unfamiliar territory with a bunch of different police agencies working together. This, this is like a situation ripe for friendly fire or some other type of accident incident. And so there's a lot of questions being thrown around. Now GBI is saying they won't release the name of the officer who shot and killed Tortuguita. And actually then later they came out and said, actually there's, there's no body camera footage and we won't release any body camera footage. That, that's because Georgia State Police historically refused to wear body cameras because of police accountability because they were under scrutiny for their violence during traffic stops. And so there is just a long line uh, connecting all of this behavior by the police, their actions, their murder, their recklessness, and the refusal to, uh, you know, even abide by the most minor of police reforms, which we know, you know, ultimately don't reduce police violence. But they they there's nothing that can corroborate their narrative and there's a call for an independent investigation activists are demanding that yeah that there be an independent investigation of the murder of the crime scene and of the situation and so that's some of what has been happening now and it seems like you know, the police will have to continue to adapt their narratives as there's increased scrutiny. But police kill every single day. When you when you look at the Georgia Bureau of Investigations, their, their press releases and things like this, it's like every other press release, sometimes multiple in a row, is like GBI investigating an officer-involved shooting. And GBI, you know, they're heading the multi-agency team that is conducting this operation in the forest, and then they're investigating themselves, essentially. Um, So there's really a lot that's questionable in the whole thing, and people broadly are not accepting the police's narrative is factual. In fact, we just know that time after time when police shoot, 
and kill someone um, or when they shoot and injure someone or when they attack and beat someone, they always claim they were the victims. They always manipulate the facts in order to serve their purposes. So that's part of what is playing out now as well. Overall, the struggle has faced quite a lot of repression and attacks by police. And part of the fight has always been to honor the history of this land and to ensure that it can heal from the scars of the past. This area, the Wilani Forest, the, the proposed site for Cop City, the old Atlanta prison farm, this is land that was originally stolen from Muscogee people who were dispossessed of it and forced onto the Trail of Tears, which is a mass murder event. Then it was turned into a plantation for a period of time and it became a dairy farm and was purchased by the city and operated as a dairy farm. And then it was turned into a prison farm worked by people who were, you know, enslaved in an ongoing manner through the U.S. carceral system. And there was like a network of prisons. There still is a federal penitentiary fairly close to this site. Uh, And so there's really deep scars here of this land being used as a prison, being used as a plantation. They're being forced labor and forced farming from people who are being held captive by the state. And what's beautiful is that the, the prison farm was decommissioned in the 80s and in the 90s um, and 2000s. Since then, it's really become like something of public space. It's like public land that is sort of like it was owned by the city of Atlanta, but just outside its limits. And people would go there freely to like explore the forest, explore the ruins. Like it was a site for sort of sanctioned trespassing and exploration. And in that time, the land was healing also. Uh, it's growing back from when it was cut down. There, There's really large, very old trees in this forest, but a lot of it also is fairly new. And and Atlanta has a tree canopy um, that's really significant. It's the most tree canopy in the whole of all cities in the U.S., but we're losing it at an extremely fast pace. And part of that is like a lot of it is trees that are 50 to 60 years old or you know, a little less, maybe 30 years old. So a lot of this forest is that, but in the Southeast, that is really what constitutes most of what we have here. So much of this land was logged um, and it doesn't change the quality of this forest. In fact, it makes it precious and something that is really valuable. We don't know what this land looked like um, before colonialism and dispossession and, you know, plantation farming. But we know what it looks like now and we know how valuable it is to the city. It's an issue that has so much impact on people here. Even though this land is really beautiful, it's used as a public park and zones of exploration here, um, it's also already there's a there's a section of the forest that is already in been in the possession of the police. They have a shooting range that is directly adjacent to a public park with a popular bike path. Something else that was, you know, part of the urban city design that has sort of been abandoned. Actually, they allowed the Hollywood developer to totally um, tear it up and like turn up all the concrete and break up this 
bike path recently. It's just like important to note that the police have already been practicing violent protest control tactics, practicing shooting to kill on this land itself for a long time in their range. The Atlanta SWAT detonate bombs, sometimes really early in the morning. It's extremely disturbing and sometimes even the force of impact and noise damage homes of people who live in the neighborhoods nearby. There's uh, a shooting range that's used all hours of the day and night by the Atlanta police historically. And it's just common for people who live in the neighborhoods around here to hear rapid gunfire with frequency. And that's part of what the local opposition has consisted of. Already there is a presence of police violence just in the training being done at the small range that exists there now, where there's a school bus that police actually shoot up. And so people are sick of being subjected to this level of gunfire, to, of course, the brutal policing of our communities of South Atlanta, the police enforcing evictions across this swath of Southwest DeKalb. This is a historically Black neighborhood, and there's just the police running rampant in it, treating it as a playground, no care for the people who live here being subjected to all of this violence. And I mean, essentially, they're practicing shooting in the woods already, and not just I mean, definitely firearms, but also tear gas. Like they litter the whole woods with tear gas. When the movement really kicked off in 2021, it was like really common for people to be exploring deep in the woods and just be turning up tear gas canisters and bullet casings, even in the public park land. Definitely through all of the efforts of the police, this really horrific killing of one of the activists and the arrest of people. Um, it, it certainly doesn't seem to have deterred people involved in the movement. If anything, there's an increase in determination. There's a lot of statements of solidarity. There's people organizing vigil, or the vigil of 250 people on Wednesday night here in Atlanta and vigils popping up all across the country, demonstrations and efforts to pressure um, all of the people involved in the decision-making for the Cop City and the Hollywood Soundstage projects, as well as all of the agencies and politicians involved in the police response were responsible for this murder. And definitely there is a sense that the mayor, the governor, the city council have blood on their hands from approving this project after... It could have been stopped when there were 17 hours of public comment, almost entirely opposed to this project, and city council passed it anyway. When, you know, the protests continued, people had attempted to contact and pressure the mayor, and he, you know, stonewalled, basically, and refused to engage with anyone on it, including city council. Um, and so there's a sense that, you know, the politicians, the police allowed it to get to this point. They could have canceled the Cop City project a long time ago. They lost some of their contractors. They lost some of their funding. And still they, they've pushed through with it and allowed things to escalate to this point where they're willing to actually kill for this project. And that's something that, that people just simply won't, won't stand for. They won't accept. 
people are determined and only looking to moving forward with more determination. Um, well, one of the lines of the movement has always been cop city will never be built. And that's just echoing so much stronger now more than ever. And there are solidarity demonstrations and vigils all across the country leading up to this. There are fundraisers for the Atlanta Solidarity Fund who are supporting the promotion of, you know, the the legal funds for everyone being arrested for domestic terrorism, supporting an independent investigation and any legal action coming out of the murder of Tortuguita. And they're committed to supporting the movement on an ongoing basis. So those are some of the things happening in the immediate future. This has been KiteLine. Thank you to everyone who helped with this episode. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every week for more stories, news, and insights on the prison system. Thank you for listening.